I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How are you now? You're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That is what we are here to talk about. I am James Whelan. Investment Manager at the VFS Group and Paul Colgan taking a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a loo just uh, sort of sitting back uh, this week. I am joined uh, from Amsterdam is the as I've said irrepressible Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. Uh, how are you now, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm uh, I'm all right. Um, yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> let's uh, let's get on with it. Good enough. Uh, we are recording this on Thursday, March the 25th, 2021. Do not forget to hit subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcasts. Now, well, there's some stuff that's going on. I did have a monologue that was sort of set up, but uh, I'll tell you what, I was overtaken by a, a, a pretty big, pretty big, pretty big super tank that, well, a container, a, 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 a container ship that uh, had decided to, to, to crash in the sewers. So we're sort of going to go into it. But I'm just going to let people know that uh, this podcast is available uh, via NFT. Uh, if uh, if anyone could show us how to sell this podcast via NFT, uh, please, can you uh, can you do that via the computer? <laughs> that is the only thing that we've got going on now. Commodities, how good are they? Uh, and not long ago, a very smart man uh, called the recent trend a commodity stupor cycle. He managed to pick the top. That person was me. Now, uh, but we have someone who can help us through. Potentially, the next leg is up. Hopefully. But it does seem like it's, uh, it's sort of diversified and, and sort of spread out. The guest today is uh, ANZ's Daniel Hines. Uh, he is the senior commodity strategist at the ANZ. And thank you for joining us, Daniel. My pleasure. Great to be here. Now, let's, uh, let's get straight into it. Suez Canal. Yeah. What is, a, what? Is, it, is it still stuck? <laughs> it's still there. It's still there, uh, unfortunately, um, and looks pretty jammed, to be honest. I mean, uh, you know, the uh, the latest uh, I was hearing just before coming on um, today was was that uh, you know the um, the salvage team has yet to to arrive on on site. The expert salvage team, apparently, um, coming in from um, Amsterdam, I think, or uh, one of those. Uh, Shipping uh, type uh, regions, and uh, you know they're they're going to have a look at it. But um, it sounds like this is going to be uh, you know a lot longer than than we expected. Um, you know the the little excavator um, failed to do his job and <laughs> get Who'd the ship out. It? Yeah, <laughs> and so uh, there's going to have to be some uh, some meaningful um, operations going. I think um, from what I heard, they're going to uh, potentially have to wait until the uh, biggest uh, high tide of the week, which could be on Sunday. I think so. You know that's uh, that's a pretty a pretty sizable delay to uh, you know one of the biggest um, uh, waterways uh, in the world um, and critical to you know trade particularly between um, you know the Middle East and and well US and the Middle East and into uh, into Europe. Yeah, what sort of numbers change on this uh, on this blockage? Well, I mean, um, you know, 
The, the sheer scale of, of um, goods that go through it is, is just astronomical. I couldn't even put a figure on the, on the value amount. I mean, certainly from a commodity perspective, um, we're looking at about a million barrels a day uh, of oil going through there. So, you know, that's, that's just a tad less than 1% of, of global supply. Um, LNG, um, I think about just under 10% um, of, uh, of global trade going through that that waterway, um, and uh, really the bulk of it, I think about half of the, the goods going through it um, are, are basically container ships. So, you know, containing everything from your um, high-definition TV um, down to some, um, some, some um, dry noodles. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 um, it is obviously um, escalating every hour, every, um, every day that it's, uh, that it's blocked, um, and I think the market's becoming increasingly um, concerned about it. Well, let's, uh, let's take a step back on, on everything that happened. So when did, uh, like, supply chain seems so important now more than ever because of what's going on with the, with the rebuild, with the regrowth, with the, re, with the reopening. And I've said this a few times, we're looking at the biggest reopening since the end of World War II mm. uh, and certain things just seem to be getting in the way. We'll talk about semiconductors. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll talk about semiconductors soon, but... Is this one of those – is this a big thing? Is it, is it a thing? I mean, I think it's the result of a thing. Um, you know, the, um, the strain on the global supply chain is just, is just so huge that these, these little blips cause uh, massive disruptions. Um, and I suppose if you take um, a step back even further, um, I mean, it was really when uh, Trump came in uh, back in um, – well, four, four or so years ago and, uh, and really started to ruffle feathers – uh, with his uh, America America First policy, um, and then you know pushed back on on Chinese imports, and we saw a massive um, redistribution, I suppose, of supply chains then, and really they haven't calmed down um, ever since. You know, um, consumers and manufacturers have been uh, struggling to to readjust as a consequence of the um, dislocations in the market, finding new sources, uh, the price um, regional price differences that we then started to see emerge. Um, and that pushed, put pressure onto uh, the global economy to start with, and then obviously we came into the um, the pandemic then um, in a in a fragile state, um, and that's uh, that's going to obviously impact um, you know the speed of the recovery. We've already started to see um, you know price uh, inflation start to pick up because of bottlenecks um, in the system. You know you can't get um, your car. Uh, when you want it now, so if you do, you've got to pay you know a, a pretty big premium for it. Um, you know they, those types of issues are, are just getting uh, worse and worse as a result of um, you know this build up of, um, of of trade flow disruptions across the world. Did you uh, uh, did you want to talk about the US numbers overnight about, uh, and what and what they could possibly mean down the yeah, the I mean the durable goods orders um, report is is a closely watched um, um, economic report for um, uh, for the US and uh, you know can really highlight um, you know particularly for commodity markets how how demand uh, is looking but you know it, it presents a pretty good uh, picture of um, you know consumer demand across the US and the numbers uh, um, shown last night were were pretty poor. Um, you know, coming into it, I think uh, the market was was hopeful that um, you know that economic recovery uh, would continue to accelerate in the US, um, and so we're looking for some pretty pretty good numbers. But 
Um, I think overall we saw about a 9% drop in, in durable goods orders, um, which uh, obviously took took the market uh, by surprise. But when you looked into the to the details, it was um, it was actually the result of these um, supply chain um, um, issues, which actually um, stopped people from buying what they wanted to buy, rather than them not wanting to buy it in the first place. Yep. So, so uh, can you up there? Yeah, I'm here, mate. I'm here. I'm, I'm just I'm just wondering how much all of this, including, I suppose the the supply chain disruptions and the, and the impact uh, onwards that that kicks on is uh, unlike the boat in the Suez Canal. How much of that is transitory, pardon the pun? But I mean, look, I suppose what I'm getting at is uh, the supply chain logistics have been, as, as Daniel's pointed out, an issue for four or so years, probably three or more. Um, the world's adjusting, but the demand side of it probably isn't there and isn't going to be there for a while. So while we see prices go up as a consequence of not being able to get everything where they should on time as we'd previously uh, lived in a world where that could happen, you know, to your timber conversation uh, last week, James. Um, no, mate, we're Australian, timber. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so I suppose my point is, does this really matter in the scheme of things? And read the durable goods uh, numbers, or well, for me it was daytime yesterday. Uh, is, is it not a relatively volatile series anyway? Uh, so month-to-month swings in normal circumstances sort of sully the picture? Yeah, no, it can be. It can be. Um, and, and certainly in the US you had obviously, you know, that Arctic blast come through um, um, during that, that period as well. So that clearly would have uh, impacted people's uh, um, purchasing um, of, of those types of goods as well. So, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot to play and, 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 uh, and so you can't, Completely um, put it onto you know supply side supply side issues, but um, yeah, these these things are certainly transitory. Um, um, but my my feeling is that they're the actual um, impact or not the impact. Sorry, the the events are becoming more common. Um, you know, so it might be that this um, you know this Suez Canal thing is is over by next week, and uh, you know we get um, all the backlog of ships through, and people sort of forget about it, but. You know when's the next one going to come? When you know when is that other um, disruption going to to hit? Um, and from my perspective, it just it, it certainly seems to be occurring a lot more. Um, very difficult to to put that into um, you know into your into your numbers because they're they're unplanned, unexpected sort of events. But um, the uh, you know they seem to be just happening more and more often these days. Are they genuinely happening more frequently, or are we simply? noticing them more as a consequence of the backdrop being, you know, as, as you pointed out, Daniel, you know, the the dynamics that Trump put into play and, and, every, and every disruption we've had consequence of the pandemic kicking off. So, I mean, you know, I can't remember the last time a boat got stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, various, various other bits and pieces. I suppose, as I said, what I'm getting at is, are we simply paying more attention to them and making mountains out of molehills because of the underlying situation that we're facing? Well, they may not be occurring um, more than, than in the past, but I suppose the impact uh, in particular is probably a lot greater yeah. these days, um, particularly when you sure. go back, um, you know, several sort of decades. I mean, the, the, the interconnectivity, I suppose, of, of, of the world uh, these days means that, um, 
you know, that type of impact might not just be felt, uh, you know, within that, that small region. It, it, it uh, hits, mm. hits, hits the globe. Um, so, yeah, people take more notice of it because they, they feel it. Um, just like, um, you know, if you don't see a, a car accident in your, in your neighbouring um, town, um, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't sort of enter your, your thoughts. But if, if it's impacting yeah. you directly, you know, if, you, if you're going down to Harvey Norman and you're paying an extra um, 10% for, for your TV, um, because you had to get the mm-hmm. other, the, uh, the mm-hmm. bigger one that was in stock yeah. rather you know than about one. it. Yeah, you know about it. Um, right and so you start to take notice of these things a bit more. And it, it does seem like the numbers that have have been coming out for the last uh, what, six six months about the reopening and 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 that trade that there is that they've been the best bull case bull case numbers that you've had. Mm. And every single time, it just seems like. And I sort of touched on this last week. It does seem like every time. There's a hiccup. Take the weather here on the east coast. Take the semiconductor thing. Take the or take this thing in the Suez. Uh, it, it just or, or take the Brazilian. Uh, you know the the, uh, the new strain of the pandemic in, in Brazil, which is going to hold up. Take China, sort of changing. Now we'll get into that in a sec. Yeah, it it does seem uh, as an investor, it does seem like it's sort of every single. Step. These aren't black swan events, but they mm. just get in the way of those bull case numbers. Yeah, you're right. And I think, um, you know, we did come into this time, um, you know, on a, on a sort of a downward trajectory in terms of economic growth. I mean, um, you know, people were worrying about um, Chinese growth slowing, obviously uh, the US uh, as well. Um, and so, you know, investment in um, a lot of these um, supply chain um Supply chains, uh, you know, were relatively low, so you know we were um, not prepared for a sudden jump in in demand, um, and uh, so the ability to react to this has, has been quite uh, quite difficult. So, you know, that's that's growing pains, which obviously um, eventually work themselves um, out, um, but we're obviously feeling the impact right right here and now, and I suppose that million dollar question will be when when that does start to subside and we see that underlying um, growth which um, you know still um, you know has has some issues uh, you know over the over the medium term James I mean is, isn't I suppose that the scenario that you've just described and, and Daniel sort of supported isn't that to my mind at least endemic of the broader market that thematically it's all good and well on paper and if you're an economist or a you know inverted commas strategist and whatever else it's, it's all nice and well to paints a picture that over the next three, six, whatever months, this will develop, that'll unfold, the eventuality will be this, therefore A, B and C. But the reality, and I think we also touched on this last week in the show, is that the reality of it is that the situation changes so quickly for various reasons on any given day that uh, investing thematically, unless you're, you know, real money with a, you know, investment horizon five plus years and you don't really give two hoots about the machinations from week to week, um, you, you're going to be in and out fairly quickly and change tack, even if you have a broader sort of macro backdrop and an idea of what, what the world's going to look like over a period of time. The way the market moves generally, irrespective of asset class, it's fairly erratic, right? It's fairly quick. It's well, volatile to a point, but surely you've just got to, you've got to adjust and as, as the market does and be in and out of stuff a lot quicker than, say, five, six, seven years ago where you could invest thematically and, and watch an idea develop and evolve over a period of time. I mean, the, the, how, do you, how do you adjust for that other than just being nimble? 
Well, I mean, from my perspective um, in the commodity space, you know, that's that's a condition I think, um, you know, we've had to deal with for, for quite some time. It's always been a, mm. quite a volatile sort of uh, market. Um, I mean, the way I sort of approach it is is twofold. Um, you know, I have a, have a, a base sort of thematic um, in my head, um, i.e., you know, copper's going to, um, you know, be um, – uh, be boosted by you know these these electric vehicle um, yep, build yep, out right, yep. um, but then I'll have uh, you know overlay that with a with a sort of a tactical view uh, based on uh, when I see that um, under or overvaluation within that market. So you're sort of playing um, two sides of it at once if you if you can see what I mean. Um, yeah. There's a long term mm. and you've got your in and out. Yeah, so exactly, exactly. So you know if you're bullish, you know you you'll look at. Um, sell-offs as an opportunity to, to buy in those sort of cases, right? Yeah, yeah. So always keeping your your underlying fundamental view there as your anchor, and then and using the uh, the volatility in the market to to really play around with that. Um, I think if you lose track of that, that's what that's where you know you can can obviously then start putting on longer bets, which um, you know can can obviously blow up in your in your face. But if you stay true to your mm. to your longer term view. Um, and just play around, you know, with that volatility in the shorter term, you can, you can still, um, you can still, uh, you know, do relatively well. My, my question, Daniel, and you're the best person to ask this of, my view and, and subsequent question is that commodities generally, as, as an asset class, if, if you want, for the last, well, several years to my mind, uh, I think have been more reflective of uh, risk on, risk of, Risk off, rather purely a spec, not purely, but predominantly a speculative play. So that the un- what I'm getting at is that the underlying demand side of things, and potentially even supply in some instances, has little or increasingly little to do with the week-to-week price changes that we're witnessing in commodity markets. They surely they reflect that you know if I don't know if stocks go up, if rates look like they're heading higher, and, and everything's you know seemingly cruisy, then commodities jump on the back of that because everyone's, you know, inferring from that that the world's going to go gangbusters and and away we go, therefore we need to own commodities. But then, you know, the slightest piece of bad news that, that puts a, a tinge on that view and commodities get hit probably disproportionately again on the downside. So how much, how much of the price action is down to legitimate demand supply dynamics and how much is, is pure, pure spec? Yeah, well, I'm... Uh I'm a, a fundamental based analyst. I uh, I, um, I went to uni and, and came out as a mining engineer. Um, I learned mm-hmm. you know the um, the basics of, of of commodities, you know, supply demand. Um, yeah, and uh, I've been doing that for twenty odd years. And I think since the financial crisis in particular, I have um, used very little of my my um, bottom up um, supply demand yeah. and analytical. Um, um, analysis um, at any time. It's all been basically top down, you know, looking at um, you know flows within within markets and how that um, impacts commodities. Um, you know, I always keep, um, and this goes back to that that sort of um, idea I was talking about just before. Keep that sort of fundamental sort of view in the back of my uh, in the back of my head, um, just to mm. put into perspective the moves um, that you see, which can be completely irrational. Uh, sometimes you know you'll get a um, a supply disruption at a at a mine which might carry five percent of world supply and then um, prices actually fall on it. Um, you know it might have been because the the US dollar was uh, was stronger for that day. So 
yeah, you've got yeah. to keep into perspective the fundamentals, but I think uh, for me, yeah, they've played very little part um, over the past few years. What are your uh, what are your bull pitches right now? Uh, well, what are, what are your absolute core? Like, what do you what, what are you banking on? Well, I mean, I'd put my house on on copper. Um, to be honest, I think um, you know people don't realise the the transition that's going on um, in the um, in the energy markets and and the broader sort of uh, global economy. Um, you know, with the uh, with this um, transition to sort of new energy sectors, um, you know, it's it's going to have quite a profound impact on on. Um, on how we um, how we consume um, a lot of items and how they're produced, and uh, and copper sits right in the middle of that. Um, I've lived and breathed uh, the 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 industry as well, and I know the the lack of investment that's gone into um, into that sector. Um, you know the struggles that um, some of the major producers uh, are having just finding quality assets um, these days. So, you know, it's not in the in the realms of a of a rare earth, but. Um, you know, it's it's certainly a commodity which is uh, difficult to find in 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 in, uh, in great quantity, and and so um, I really struggle to see how it's going to um, going to meet you know these even the even the sort of the relatively cautious um, sort of uh, outlook that um, you know people have on electric vehicles or even you know the renewable energy space, which it has an important part to play there as well. So yeah, I mean that that would be my one. My one pick, if I had to had to choose one, without within the commodity space. That is wonderful to hear. Do you have a target on on the copper price? Well, I have an official target. Um, the house, <laughs> the house, house view, view, go house view. The house, first, the house view is is um, what is it? Ten thousand dollars a ton. Um, That'll do. And uh, look, we've uh, we've nearly. I mean, we've been there been there before, but um, you know, it's 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 still a um, um, an elusive or relatively um, difficult. Um, you know, target to get to, I think, for the for the market. Um, but um, you know, once it once it breaks through those uh, you know those levels, I think um, you know the sky's the limit after that. Um, and look, it'll really be driven by by obviously how the transition um, to these to these new uh, new energy um, sectors go. You know, if if people really do take up EVs quite strongly, if um, you know the, the the wind and solar um, transition. Um, um, happens relatively quickly, then um, you know the market's going to be caught uh, caught short, and it's going to really uh, suck any every available ton uh, yeah. that's available. And the uh, so Biden's uh, you know, President Biden's uh, new infrastructure plan mm. was originally always expected to be two trillion dollars. Then a couple of days ago, three trillion dollars. Maybe it's not three trillion dollars. Look, it doesn't matter. That's a lot of money that's going into that. Clean energy is going to be a big part of that. Um, any particular forecast that's coming out of the infrastructure spend, which is, uh, for, for me, that's a bullish commodity play. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, the, the impact will be fairly fairly broad. I mean, um, I know the US, um, you know, has really lacked, um, um, you know, uh, the build out of, of their just their basic infrastructure. So the bridges and, and roads and things, you know, haven't really been kept up to um, up to speed. So, you know, that'll, that'll obviously um, boost, you know, Steel and steel and iron ore demand as a consequence, but he does have obviously a, a you know quite an aggressive clean energy policy. Um, you know, one of his infrastructure plans was to build out the 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 charging network uh, for for the electric vehicles, and he wants to obviously uh, move the entire public um, um, fleet EV. yeah, yeah, to yeah. EVs. Um, and you know, the amount of copper you need for that is just it's is just uh, unbelievable. Three times three times as much copper in an EV 
than in an ICE. That's uh, I, uh, that's the only thing that sits in the back of my mind with anything. Yeah, that base case that if you can, if everyone goes EV, that's a lot of copper that needs to go into those cars. And in fact, the the leverage um, on the energy side is even greater. So, if you look at uh, the copper required to build, uh, you know, one gigawatt of capacity um, in in a power net network um, in a um, a wind project as opposed to um, the traditional sort of coal-fired uh, power plant is something in the order of 10 to 15 times um, the amount of copper uh, required. So, you know, you're looking at obviously the transmission lines going out, particularly on offshore uh, wind farms, um, you know, the, the motors in the, in the, um, um, in the, in the, uh, the wind uh, propellers themselves, um, you know, it's just, it's just astronomical. So, um, you know, that, uh, that sort of leverage on, on uh, the electrification sort of properties um, of, of copper is just uh, immense. I've got, I've, got a quick, I've got a quick question, sorry. Uh, just, just on that, so, I mean, the Biden infrastructure, you know, plan, bill, whatever is, let's call it three trillion, whatever else, as well as, you know, all, all the potential demand everywhere else in the world, this, that and the other. I suppose I'm wondering how much of that uh, proposed and future demand, etc., has been discounted back to today's prices because, I mean, it's it's an obvious and easy story to sell. We're, we're all going down the electrification path. It's going to mean this, that, and the other, and and so on and so forth, and these are the knock-on effects. How much of that has been discounted back to today, and the, and what is that versus the reality of how long it's going to take if, it, if we even get halfway there over, I don't know, decade, decade and a half, whatever it is. Um, you know, Biden can put anything on paper. I mean, Trump did plenty of that. But the question is, you know, will it actually manifest and will all the other stuff manifest and over what time frame? Yeah, I mean, look, for, um, for commodities, um, yeah, you look at it in terms of what um, price is required to incentivise enough supply to meet that demand. Um, mm. So, you know, that's always a, obviously a, a difficult uh, question, but certainly the market would have an idea of – um, you know, on, on a consensus basis, you know, how much uh, copper demand is going to grow over the next um, five or so years. Um, I don't think they would look any further than that, but, um, you know, they would have a, have a number in place. And, and the market, um, the copper market itself, will then push itself to a point um, where, you know, it thinks it'll incentivise um, enough copper to come into the market to balance it out. Yep. Um, now, um, the problem with with copper is that, um, and a lot of other commodities, uh, to be honest, is that um, um, you know that price um, uh, between you know the cost of production and and where it is now is is so large that um, you know it hasn't um, hasn't even incentivised enough supply to come into the market to meet current demand, let alone. Mm. You know what we expect to see um, that's, in that's the future. Production coming online or re-online or coming back online. Like, what, yeah. How much? How much flow is behind? How, how much flow is in the pipeline to come back online? Where is it sort of set? What, what, like well, I mean, obviously, you know, for for brownfield capacity, um, you find the costs are much lower. So that that stuff can come on pretty quickly. And I think the industry as a whole um, has pretty much sucked out most of that. Um, over the years, um, it's it's then the, the greenfield development of, of these these projects which are which are really required, and that obviously takes 
uh, quite a bit of upfront capital um, and and a fair bit of leap of faith, you know, by the um, by the de- developers. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I suppose prices can then feel like they're disconnected from the fundamentals. Um, but it's really it's really a, just a case of the market just pushing and pushing and pushing to a point where. Um, I suppose then you know the the commodity itself becomes um, obsolete, and there'll be technologies that form that that become available that that potentially um, you know uh, reduce the use of copper. Now um, I'm I'm going to ask you a question straight off the cuff, with you know, unplanned, but you're a, you know a former mining engineer. What do you think the next thing is? Because everything that I read and everything that I play on is that. The, the the EV revolution and the ESG uh, not the ESG but, but the sustainable revolution it takes a lot of it, it it takes a lot of minerals it takes a lot of metals it's a mining revolution what is it what is, what play the tape to the end what happens after that well you I've, don't have to answer <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought that deep uh, to be honest <laughs> um, that's a very good question it's it's probably the basis of a great sci-fi movie I uh, I suspect because it's it, it feels like it would be sort of that far out um, in the future and so different to what um, you know we're we're feeling and experiencing right now yeah um, no I, I'll, I'll take that on board and uh, and dwell on it for a little bit but because um, yeah, I, I'm only investing based on what's yeah. right in front of me. Based yeah. on the based on the simple facts that people need copper, people need lithium, cars need things, wind turbines need whatever. Yep. Oil has a certain need. That's what I'm investing. And and when we run out of nickel, when mm. we run out of tin, when we run out of it, I, I'm not sure what the next player really is. Well, you never yeah, you but, never but, see. Let, let's be honest, James. I mean, we, we <clears throat> by the time that scenario rolls around. You, me, and everyone we know will be long gone, and we will probably be in part the minerals that are required to do what it like. I mean, honestly, mate, we're talking what 50, 60, 100 years away. Um, it, it, hell of a horizon. It could be A, it could be quicker than you think, and B, the, the decisions that we make now as investors will echo for a very long time. Maybe it's just mm, later on yours. Thursday. Yours, very good. Now, China, right. Mm. Uh, straight into it. Chinese steel production, they're, I'm just giving you an open slather on this one, uh, restrictions on steel mills, uh, cutting steel emissions. What's the next, like, what, what are the next stage on this one? Yeah, I mean, look, China's been um, trying to reduce, I suppose, the the environmental impact of, of heavy industry for, for quite some time and uh, certainly steel, um, you know, has, has been an issue for them. Um you know, and they want to obviously um, develop like any other um, mature economy does. You know, pushing more into the value-added sort of products rather than the raw steel um, and iron ore um, that um, that it has been um, uh, producing of late. So, you know, they're looking to you know deleverage that, and as a consequence, I think steel production is going to start to, to fall pretty soon, um, and that has you know big consequences, obviously, for the, uh, the steel-making raw materials like iron ore and coking coal. Um, you know, it could be it could be another decade or so away, but certainly, um, you know, we're expecting to see iron ore demand start to fall as a consequence. So that has, has big implications over the longer term for, um, you know, the the exporters here in in Australia, BHP and Rio and Fortescue. Um, and I think they've sort of, um, you know, become to, uh, you know, be a little bit concerned about that. Um, certainly with. Um, their actions around some of those long-term projects that they've uh, basically put on the on the back shelf now, um, as a consequence of you know this this peak 
steel demand story that um, you know seems to be uh, rapidly approaching us. Um, so, yeah, that's that's an issue for um, you know broader commodity markets um, as well, I suppose, as as China. Um, you know, transitions through that that typical cycle out of the um, the early stage commodities um, into those more value added ones, and that's another reason why I like the copper side because that's that's a uh, that's a commodity which generally uh, performs relatively well late in the cycle uh, of a maturing economy, and and that's the, the the sorry the Chinese maturing economy. That's where you see the copper play coming in on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I mean, um, you know, they're becoming. Um, you know, consumers, um, you know, very um, – um, or consumers like in the US, which which basically fuel that economy um, at the moment. And, uh, you know, they'll want their, their air conditioning units and their EV cars and, you know, they'll probably want it all powered by uh, wind um, or solar or hydro or whatever. So, um, you know, that, um, that services-based uh, economy um, that, uh, you know, that sort of um, develops from – um, obviously, will will impact um, you know the build out of of um, buildings and roads and um, and bridges and the like. But you know those value added uh, products, which um, uh, depend on a lot of these um, a lot of these metals, um, you know, tend to perform relatively well. Now, how does the uh, do you have a view on the US dollar? Well, we're we're broadly broadly um, bearish on it um, over the next twelve months. Um, Overall, as the as the index or versus the Aussie. Uh, the index. Okay. Um, I mean, I think the Aussie should hold up relatively well. Just, just certainly in the in the next uh, little while, due to the you know the commodity um, cycle coming through. Um, but I think um, you know against other other crosses, uh, you know, I suspect it'll it'll start to suffer. Particularly if we see um, you know Europe finally get its um, stuff together and uh, you know start to uh, show some some strength, but. Um, um, I think, um, I think broadly speaking, yeah, we're we're expecting the DXY to to, to essentially um, um, fall from here. Um, Which yeah, the all of the things year. all things being equal, a, a dollar a US dollar falling is bullish for commodities. All things being equal, that, that, that was a. Speaking of Europe, Ken, how is it going over there? Mm, not well. That's the polite version. Um, I can give you the real answer, but I believe Rick will have a hard time editing it all out. Um, mate, it's, it's, it's far from great. Um, if we're talking about Corona, then I think it's not uh, melodramatic of me to say that we are on the cusp, if not already on in the third wave. Uh, vaccinations going at a snail's pace across the entire continent. Um, infection numbers going up, lockdowns not working. We've just here in Holland had a, an already four-month lockdown extended for a fifth out to the end of April. Means nothing, frankly, um, because numbers are only just going up. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it depends on when you ask about Europe, in what context. As I said, COVID, not good. Uh, everything else that stems off it, well, Europe's just Europe. I mean, you know, good days, bad days, but it, it's not going anywhere, right? So as, as an economic hub or, uh, you know, it's plodding along, right, getting there. Yeah, it would be good to have Europe a part of that puzzle for the for the global recovery. And speaking of the global recovery, so uh, I'm looking at your most recent note here, Daniel, there have been three major booms in commodity markets since World War II, uh, 1950 to 1955, 72 to 80, and 2005 to 2009. So do you want to walk us through the current cycle, how it's different, and maybe what the what the end game is on that one? 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we didn't have a pandemic in uh, in those uh, those first three, so um, you know that's that's quite unique. Um, I mean, some of some of those uh, those were. I mean, the the commonality, I suppose, between them all has been you know that economic growth uh, behind it, or at least it's it's generally sparked uh, that recovery. The the um, the one post the Korean War. Um, then the uh, the one out of the early seventies um, recession, um, and then obviously you know the China boom um, last decade. Um, yeah, this this time around, we're obviously seeing um, you know a more synchronised, or we think a more synchronised uh, level of growth um, across the globe than we have in in quite some time, and that. Um, that uh, will certainly uh, boost commodity demand in in general. I think um, what we aren't seeing, I suppose, is um, you know some of the other factors just yet to to really uh, push that into a, a multi year sort of uh, super cycle. We're, we're getting close, and I think um, you know if these supply side issues continue to persist, which I which I think they will, um, you know if we have other other um, other issues really uh, really join in on the, on that party, then there's there's great potential for this to 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 grow uh, even further. But um, you know that we are starting to see signs that it won't be or the impact won't be um, broadly the same across all the commodities. So we might start to see um, some commodities uh, suffer and we've already talked about steel and iron ore as being one that probably won't have a, a great outlook over the next uh, few years. Um, and also potentially uh, oil, uh, which I'd put in there um, as being a commodity which uh, I don't think has a huge amount of upside um, over that period as well. The rest, and we, you know, we've talked about, you know, particularly the the metals. Uh, I see, you know, um, a lot of promise um, in those. So, whether that can sustain a broad sort of rally in in commodities in general, um, you know, will yet to be seen. I think, um, you know, those other cycles have definitely seen the main uh, components of uh, of the commodity sector, you know, being being oil, uh, being copper, and being um, steel all uh, performing relatively well. And uh, for me, that isn't really um, aligned just yet. I've, I've just got the one, one, last, yeah, one last question, actually, on, on the notion of super cycles and whatnot. How much of it, I mean, previously in the three that you mentioned, I, I, I think the answer is almost 100%. But in this iteration, how much of the, the notion of a super cycle, even if it's, you know, amongst commodities a little bit disparate, um, how much of it is predicated on synchronicities global growth so i mean because to my mind the, the idea of synchronized global growth yeah throw that out the window it's just not going to happen irrespective of, of why but i've got my reasons but uh so if if my premise is that synchronized global growth isn't going to happen uh how much of this super cycle or any super cycle going forward is predicated on everyone going all at once as opposed to pockets here and there it's um, yeah, it's it's fairly important for the sustainability of it or the length of it. I think um, you know yeah. we've seen it. Um, it's it's sparked um, or growth in certain sectors has sparked it, and certainly you know the last cycle um, starting in two thousand and five that was pretty much just China, um, you know, mm, growing exponentially. Mm. So that was a good time to be a guy on the desk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, it's not always the case, um, uh, but certainly um, you know helps i think sustain it over a, over a long period of time um so that yeah that's that's um that's obviously something we'll have to to wait and see and i think for me there's there is you know a question mark over the the sustainability of that of that growth uh, being 
the type of um, uh, the type of cycle we're having um, now, um, you know, being being much more different, I suppose, to uh, to what we've seen in the past. Um, so, yeah, there's there's plenty of plenty of question marks, um, and I think um, yeah, that synchronisation is is certainly uh, an important part of it. Well, th- uh, sure. on that, Ken, no more bids. No, no, I'm good. Daniel, no more bids. Not for me. Good enough. Uh, thank you very much, Daniel Hines, to uh, for joining us. Today on the BIP Show, uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe to the show, rate us and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Thank you again, Daniel. That was good. And to the AZ. Uh, if anyone on Bloomberg wants to have a look at what you got, it is on, and I had it here a second ago, ANZR. Uh-huh. Put it in. It's, uh, it's a pretty worthwhile uh, look. Uh, uh, as I said, you can find us on iTunes at the BIP Show. We are on Twitter it's at the underscore BIP underscore show. And we are on Facebook too. Just search the BIP show individually. Oh, Colgo isn't here. So good luck, Colgo. I am at James Whelan 42 and at Ken Vexler. Uh, Daniel, you've got a Twitter handle, don't you? At Daniel Hines. Good enough. One word. Fantastic. And uh, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. You've got to give us those five-star ratings. They are doing fantastically well for us. Thank you so much. This show is produced by... Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.